Chapter Eleven of The Mysteries of Paris, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter. The Mysteries of Paris by Eugène Sue, Volume One. Chapter Eleven. Murphy and Rudolph. Upon quitting the house, Rudolph bent his steps towards the farmyard, where he found the individual who, the preceding evening, disguised as a charcoal man, had warned him of the arrival of Tom and Sarah. Murphy, which was the name of this personage, was about fifty years of age. His head, nearly bald, was still ornamented with a fringe of light brown hair at each side, which the hand of time had here and there slightly tinged with grey. His face was broad, open, and ruddy, and free from all appearance of hair, except very short whiskers of a reddish colour, only reaching as low as the tip of the ear, from which it diverged and stretched itself in a gentle curve across his rubicund cheeks. Spite of his years and en bon point, Murphy was active and athletic. His countenance, though somewhat phlegmatic, was expressive of great resolution and kindliness of nature. He wore a white neck-handkerchief a deep waistcoat, and a long black coat, with very wide skirts. His breeches, of an olive-green colour, corresponded in material with the gaiters which protected his sturdy legs, without reaching entirely to the knee, but allowing the strings belonging to his upper garment to display themselves in long, unstudied bows. In fact, the dress and whole tournure of Murphy exactly accorded with the idea of what, in England, is styled a gentleman farmer. Now, the personage we are describing, though an English squire, was no farmer. At the moment of Rudolph's appearance in the yard, Murphy was in the act of depositing, in the pocket of a small travelling calèche, a pair of small pistols he had been carefully cleaning. "'What the devil are you going to do with those pistols?' inquired Rudolph. "'That is my business, my lord,' replied Murphy, descending the carriage steps. "'Attend to your affairs, and I will mind mine.' "'At what o'clock have you ordered the horses?' "'According to your directions, at nightfall. "'You got here this morning, I suppose?' "'I did, at eight o'clock. "'Madame Georges has had ample time to make all the preparations you desired.' "'What has gone wrong, Murphy? "'You seem completely out of humour. "'Have I done anything to offend you?' "'Can you not, my lord, accomplish your self-imposed task "'without incurring so much personal risk?' "'Surely, in order to lull all suspicion in the minds of the persons I seek to understand and fully appreciate, I cannot do better than, for a time, to adopt their garb, their language, and their customs.' "'But all this did not prevent you, my lord, last night, in that abominable place where we went to unkennel Bras Rouge, in hopes of getting out of him some particulars relative to that unhappy son of Madame Georges, from being angry and ready to quarrel with me, because I wish to aid you in your tussle with the rascal you encountered in that horrid cut-throat alley? I suppose, then, Murphy, you do not think I am capable of defending myself, and you either doubt my courage or the strength of my arm. Unfortunately, you have given me too many reasons to form a contrary opinion of both. Thank God! Flatman, the Bertrand of Germany, perfected you in the knowledge of fencing? Tom Cribb taught you to box. La Cour of Paris accomplished you in a single-stick wrestling and slang, so as to render you fully provided for your venturesome excursions. You are bold as a lion, with muscles like iron. 
and though so slight in form, I should have no more chance with you than a dray-horse would against a racer, were they to compete with each other. No mistake about that. Then what are you afraid of? Why, I maintain, my lord, that it is not the right thing for you to throw yourself in the way of all these blackguards. I do not say that because of the nuisance it is to a highly respectable individual of my acquaintance to blacken his face with charcoal and make himself look like the devil. No, God knows, spite of my age, my figure, and my gravity, I would disguise myself as a rope-dancer, if by so doing I could serve you. But I still stick to what I say, and, oh, I know all you would say, my excellent old fellow, and that when once you have taken an idea into your thick skull, the very devil himself could no more drive it out of you than he could, by all his arts, remove the fidelity and devotion implanted in your brave and valiant heart. Come, come, my lord, now you begin to flatter me. I suspect you are up to some fresh mischief. Think no such thing, Murphy. Give yourself no uneasiness, but leave all to me. My lord, I cannot be easy. There is some new folly in hand. I am sure of it. My good friend, you mean well, but you are choosing a very ill hour for your lectures. Forbear, I beg. And why, my lord, can you not listen to me now, as well as any other time? Because you are interfering with one of my short-lived moments of pride and happiness. I am here, in this dear spot. Well, you have done so much good, I know it. Your model farm, as you term it, built by you to instruct, to encourage, and reward deserving labourers, has been of incalculable service to this part of the country. Ordinary men think but of improving their cattle. You, more wisely and benevolently, have directed your exertions to the bettering of your fellow-creatures. Nothing can be better. When you placed Madame Georges at the head of the establishment, you acted with the utmost wisdom and provident good sense. What a woman she is! No, she is an angel. So good, so firm, so noble and upright. I am not easily moved, my lord, as you know. But often have I felt my eyes grow moist, as her many trials and misfortunes rise in my recollection. But about your new protégé, however, my lord, if you please, we will not say much on that subject. The least said is soonest mended, as the old proverb has it. Why not, Murphy? My lord, you will do what you think proper. I do what is just, said Rudolph, with an air of impatience. What is just, according to your own interpretation? What is just before God and my own conscience? replied Rudolph, in a severe tone. "'Well, my lord, this is a point on which we cannot agree, and therefore let us speak no more about it. I desire you will continue to talk about it,' cried Rudolph imperiously. "'I have never been so circumstanced that your royal highness should have to bid me hold my tongue, and I hope I shall not now be ordered to speak when I should be silent,' said Murphy proudly. "'Mr. Murphy,' said Rudolph, with a tone of increased irritation, "'my lord,' "'You know, sir, how greatly I detest anything like concealment. "'Your Royal Highness will excuse me, "'but it suits me to have certain concealments,' said Murphy, bluntly. "'If I descend to familiarity with you, sir, "'it is on condition that you at least act with entire frankness towards me.' "'It is impossible to describe the extreme hauteur "'which marked the countenance of Rudolph as he uttered these words.' "'I am fifty years of age, I am a gentleman, and your royal highness should not address me in such a tone. "'Be silent, my lord,' 
"'Be silent, I say!' "'Your Royal Highness does wrong in compelling a man of honour and feeling "'to recall the services he has rendered to you,' said the squire, in a calm tone. "'Have I not repaid those services in a thousand ways?' It should be stated that Rudolph had not attached to these bitter words the humiliating sense which could place Murphy in the light of a mercenary, but such, unfortunately, was the esquire's interpretation of them. He became purple with shame, lifted his two clenched hands to his forehead with an expression of deep grief and indignation, and then, in a moment, as by a sudden revulsion of feeling, throwing his eyes upon Rudolph, whose noble countenance was convulsed by the violence of extreme disdain, he said, in a faltering voice, and stifling a sigh of the tenderest pity, "'My lord, be yourself. You surpass the bounds of reason.' These words impelled Rudolph to the very height of irritation. His glance had even a savage glare in it. His lips were blanched, and advancing towards Murphy with a threatening aspect, he exclaimed, "'Dare you?' Murphy retreated, and said in a quick tone, and as if in spite of himself, "'My lord, my lord, remember the thirteenth of January!' These words produced a magical effect on Rudolph. His countenance, contracted by anger, now expanded. He looked at Murphy steadfastly, bowed his head, and then, after a moment's silence, murmured in faltering accents, "'Ah, sir, you are now cruel indeed!' I had thought that my repentance, my deep remorse, and yet it is you, you. Rudolph could not finish. His voice was stifled. He sunk, subdued, on a stone bench, and concealed his countenance with both his hands. My lord, said Murphy, in deep distress, my good lord, forgive me, forgive your old and faithful Murphy. "'That was only when driven to an extremity, and fearing, alas, not for myself, but for you, the consequences of your passion, that I uttered these words. I said them in spite of myself, and with sorrow. My lord, I was wrong to be so sensitive. Mon Dieu, who can know your character, your feelings, if I do not? I, who have never left you from your childhood. Pray, oh, pray, say that you forgive me for having called to your recollection that sad, sad day.' "'Alas! what expiations have you not made?' Rudolph raised his head. He was very pale, and said to his companion, in a gentle and saddened voice, "'Enough, enough, my old friend. I thank you for having, by one word, checked my headlong passion. I make no apologies to you for the severe things I have said. You know well that it is a long way from the heart to the lips, as the good people at home say. I was wrong.' Let us say no more on the subject. Ah, alas, now we shall be out of spirits for a long time, as if I were not sufficiently unhappy. I only wished to see you rouse from your low spirits, and yet I add to them by my foolish tenaciousness. Good heavens, what is the use of being an honest man and having grey hairs if it does not enable us to endure reproaches which we do not deserve? Be it so, be it so. We were both in the wrong, my good friend.' said Rudolph mildly. Let us forget it, and return to our former conversation. You approved entirely of my establishment of this farm, and the deep interest I have always felt in Madame Georges. You will allow, won't you, that she had merited it by her excellent qualities, her misfortunes, even if she did not belong to the family of Aville, a family to which my father had vowed eternal gratitude. 
"'I have always approved of the sentiments which your lordship has entertained for Madame Georges.' "'But you are astonished at the interest I take in this poor girl, are you not?' Oh, "'Pray, pray, my lord, I was wrong, I was wrong.' "'No, I can imagine that appearances have deceived you. "'But as you know my life, all my life, "'and as you aid me always with as much fidelity as courage "'in my self-inflicted expiation, "'it is my duty, or, if you like the phrase better, my gratitude, "'to convince you that I am not acting from a frivolous impulse.' "'Of that I am sure, my lord.' "'You know my ideas on the subject of the good "'which a man ought to do who has the knowledge, the will, and the power. "'To succour unhappy but deserving fellow-creatures is well. "'To seek after those who are struggling against misfortune "'with energy and honour, and to aid them, sometimes without their knowledge, "'to prevent, in the right time, misery and temptation, is better. "'To reinstate each perfectly in their own estimation.' to lead back to honesty those who have preserved in purity some generous and ignoble sentiments in the midst of the contempt that withers them, the misery that eats into them, the corruption that encircles them, and for that end to brave in person this misery, this corruption, this contagion, is better still. To pursue with unalterable hatred, with implacable vengeance, vice, infamy, and crime, whether they be trampling in the mud or be clothed in purple and fine living that is justice but to give aid inconsiderately to well-merited degradation to prostitute and lavish charity and incommiseration by bestowing help on unworthy and undeserving objects is most infamous it is impiety very sacrilege it is to doubt the existence of the almighty and so he who acts thus ought to be made to understand my lord i pray you do not think that i would for a moment assert that you have bestowed your benefits unworthily one word more my old friend you know well that the child whose death i daily deplore that the daughter whom i should have loved the more as her unworthy mother sarah had shown herself so utterly indifferent about her would have been sixteen years of age like this unhappy girl you know, too, that I cannot prevent the deep and almost painful sympathy that I feel for young girls of that age. True, my lord, and I ought to have so interpreted the interest you evince for your protégé. Besides, to succour the unfortunate is to honour God. It is, my friend, when the objects deserve it, and thus nothing is more worthy of compassion and respect than a woman like Madame Georges, who, brought up by a pious and good mother in the strict observance of all her duties, has never failed, never, and has, moreover, courageously borne herself in the midst of the most severe trials. But is it not to honour God in the most acceptable way to raise from the dust one of these beings of the finest mould, whom he has been pleased to endow richly? Does not she deserve compassion and respect? Yes, respect. Who, unhappy girl, abandoned to her own instinct, who, tortured, imprisoned, degraded, sullied, has yet preserved in holiness and pureness of heart those noble terms of good first implanted by the Almighty. If you had but seen, poor child, how, at the first word of interest expressed for her, the first mark of kindness and right feeling, the most charming natural impulses, the purest tastes, the most refined thoughts, 
the most poetic ideas develop themselves abundantly in her ingenuous mind even as in the early spring a thousand wild flowers lift up their heads at the first rays of the sun in a conversation of about an hour with fleur de marie i have discovered treasures of goodness worth prudence yes prudence old murphy a smile came to my lips and a tear in my eye when in her gentle and sensible prattle she urged on me the necessity of saving forty sous a day that i might be beyond want or evil temptations poor little creature she said all this with so serious and persuasive a tone she seemed so delighted to give me good advice and experienced so extreme a pleasure in hearing me promise to follow it i was moved even to tears and you it affects you my old friend it does my lord the idea of making you lay by forty sous a day thinking you a workman instead of urging you to spend money on her that does touch me gush here are madame's georges and marie get all ready for our departure we must be in paris in good time thanks to the care of madame georges fleur de marie was no longer like her former self a pretty peasant's cap and two thick braids of light brown hair encircled her charming face a large handkerchief of white muslin crossed her bosom and disappeared under the high fold of a small shot taffeta's apron whose blue and red shades appeared to advantage over a dark nun's dress which seemed expressly made for her the young girl's countenance was calm and composed certain feelings of delight produce in the mind an unspeakable sadness a holy melancholy rudolph was not surprised at the gravity of fleur de marie he had expected it had she been merry and talkative she would not have retained so high a place in his good opinion in the serious and resigned countenance of madame georges might easily be traced the indelible marks of long-suffering but she looked at fleur de marie with a tenderness and compassion quite maternal so much gentleness and sweetness did this poor girl evince here is my child who has come to thank you for your goodness monsieur rudolph said madame georges presenting goualeuse to rudolph at the words my child goualeuse turned her large eyes slowly towards her protectress and contemplated her for some moments with a look of unalterable gratitude thanks for marie my dear madame georges she deserves this kind interest and always will deserve it monsieur rudolph said goualeuse in a trembling voice you understand i know i feel that you do that i cannot find anything to say to you your emotion tells me all my child oh she feels deeply the good fortune that has come to her so providentially said madame georges deeply affected her first impulse on entering my room was to prostrate herself before my crucifix because now thanks to you monsieur rudolph i dare to pray said goualeuse murphy turned away hastily his pretensions to firmness would not allow of any one seeing to what extent the simple words of goualeuse had touched him rudolph said to her my child i wish you to have some conversation with madame georges my friend murphy will lead you over to the farm and introduce you to your future proteges we will join you presently well murphy murphy don't you hear me the worthy gentleman turned his back and pretended to blow his nose with a very loud noise then putting his handkerchief in his pocket pulled his hat over his eyes and turning half round offered his arm to marie managing so skilfully that neither rudolph nor madame georges could see his face 
Taking the arm of Marie, he walked away with her towards the farm buildings, and so quickly that to keep up with him, Goualeuse was obliged to run, as in her infant days she ran beside the Chouette. "'Well, Madame Georges, what do you think of Marie?' inquired Rudolph. "'Monsieur Rudolph, I have told you she had scarcely entered my room, when seeing the crucifix she fell on her knees before it. It is impossible for me to tell you to describe the spontaneous and naturally religious feeling that evidently dictated this. I saw in an instant that hers was no degraded soul. And then, Monsieur Rudolph, the expression of her gratitude to you had nothing exaggerated in it, but it is not the less sincere. Then I have another proof of how natural and potent is this religious instinct in her. I said to her, you must have been very much astonished and very happy when Monsieur Rudolph told you that you were to remain here for the future. What an effect it must have had on you! Yes, oh yes, was her reply. When Monsieur Rudolph told me so, I cannot describe what passed within me, but I felt that kind of holy happiness which I experience in going into a church. When I could go there, she added, for you know, madame, I know my child, for I shall always call you my child. I could not let her go on when I saw her cover her face for shame. I know that you have suffered deeply, but God blesses those who love and fear him, those who have been unhappy and those who repent. Then, my good Madame Georges, I am doubly happy at what I have done. This poor girl will greatly interest you. Her disposition is so excellent, her instinct so right. What has besides affected me, Monsieur Rudolph, is that she has not allowed one single question to escape her about you, although her curiosity must be so much excited. Struck with a reserve so full of delicacy, I wished to know what she felt. I said to her, You must be very curious to know who your mysterious benefactor is. Know him, she replied with delightful sympathy. He is my benefactor. Then you will love her, excellent woman, she will find some interest in your heart. Yes, I shall occupy my heart with her as I should with him, said Madame Georges in a broken voice. Rudolph took her hand. Do not be discouraged. Come, come. If our search has been unsuccessful so far, yet one day perhaps... Madame Georges shook her head sorrowfully, and said in bitter accents, My poor son would now be twenty years old say he is that age god hear you and granted monsieur rudolph he will hear i fully believe yesterday i went but in vain to find a certain fellow called bras rouge who might perhaps have given me some information about your son coming away from this bras rouge's abode after a struggle in which i was engaged i met with this unfortunate girl "'Alas! But your kind endeavour in my behalf has thrown in your way another unfortunate being, Monsieur Rudolph.' "'You have no intelligence from Rochefort?' "'None,' said Madame Georges, shuddering, and in a low voice. "'So much the better. We can no longer doubt but that the monster met his death in the attempt to escape from the—' Rudolph hesitated to pronounce the horrible word. "'From the bagne! Oh, say it! The bagne!' exclaimed the wretched woman, with horror, and almost frantic as she spoke. "'The father of my child! Ah! If the unhappy boy still lives! If, like me, he has not changed his name! Oh, shame! Shame! And yet it may be nothing. 
His father has perhaps carried out his horrid threat. What has he done with my boy? Why did he tear him from me? That mystery I cannot fathom, said Rudolph with a pensive air. What could induce the wretch to carry off your son fifteen years ago, and when he was trying to escape into a foreign land? A child of that age could only embarrass his flight. Alas, Monsieur Rudolph, when my husband—the poor woman shuddered as she pronounced the word— was arrested on the frontier and thrown into prison where I was allowed to visit him, he said to me these horrible words. I took away the brat because you are fond of him, and it will be a means of compelling you to send me money, which may or may not be of service to him. That's my affair. Whether he lives or dies, it is no matter to you. But if he lives, he will be in good hands. You shall drink as deep of the shame of the son as you have of the disgrace of the father. Alas! a month afterwards my husband was condemned to the galleys for life, and since then all my entreaties, my prayers, and letters have been in vain. I have never been able to learn the fate of my boy. Ah, Monsieur Rudolph, where is my child at this moment? These frightful words are always ringing in my ears. You shall drink as deep of the shame of the son as you have of the disgrace of the father. This atrocity is most inexplicable. Why should he demoralise the unhappy child? Why carry him off? I have told you, Monsieur Rudolph, to compel me to send him money, although he had nearly ruined me. Yet I had still some small resources, but they at length were exhausted also. In spite of his wickedness, I could not believe but that he would employ at least a portion of this money in the bringing up of this unhappy child. And your son had no sign? No mark by which he could be recognised. No other than that of which I have spoken to you, Monsieur Rudolph, a small Saint-Esprit, sculptured in lapis lazuli, tied round his neck by a chain of silver, a sacred relic, blessed by the Holy Father. Courage, courage. God is all-powerful. Providence placed me in your path, Monsieur Rudolph. Too late, Madame Georges, too late. I might have saved you many years of sorrow. Ah, Monsieur Rudolph, how kind you have been to me! In what way? I bought this farm in time of your prosperity. You were not idle, and now you have become my manager here, where, thanks to your excellent superintendence, intelligence, and activity, this establishment produces me— Produces you, my lord, said Madame Georges, interpreting Rudolph. Why, all the returns are employed, not only in ameliorating the condition of the labourers, who consider the occupation on this model farm as a great favour, but moreover to succour all the needy in the district, through the mediation of our good Abbe Laporte. Ah, the dear Abbe, said Rudolph, desirous of escaping the praise of Madame Georges. Have you had the kindness to inform him of my arrival? I wish to recommend my protégé to him. He has had my letter— Mr. Murphy gave it to him when he came this morning. In that letter I told our good curé, in a few words, the history of this poor girl. I was not sure that I should be able to come to-day myself, and if not, then Murphy would have contacted Marie. A labourer of the farm interrupted this conversation, which had been carried on in the garden. Madame, Monsieur le curé is waiting for you. Are the post-horses arrived, my lad? inquired Rudolph. "'Yes, Monsieur Rudolph, and they are putting to.' And the man left the garden. Madame Georges, the curé, and the inhabitants of the farm only knew Fleur-de-Marie's protector as Monsieur Rudolph. 
Murphy's discretion was faultless, and although when in private he was very precise in my lording, Rudolph, yet before strangers he was very careful not to address him otherwise than as Monsieur Rudolph. "'I forgot to mention, my dear Madame Georges,' said Rudolph, when he returned to the house, "'that Marie has, I fear, very weak lungs. Privation and misery have tried her health. This morning early I was struck with the pallor of her countenance.' Although her cheeks were of a deep rose colour, her eyes too seemed to me to have a brilliancy which betokens a feverish system. Great care must be taken of her. Rely on me, Monsieur Rudolph, but thank God there is nothing serious to apprehend. At her age, in the country, with pure air, rest and quiet, she will soon be quite restored. I hope so, but I will not trust to your country doctors. I will desire Murphy to bring here my medical man, a negro, very skilful person, who will tell you the best regimen to pursue. You must send me news of Marie very often. Sometime hence, when she shall be better and more at ease, we will talk about her future life. Perhaps it would be best that she always remained with you, if you were pleased with her. I should like it greatly, Monsieur Rudolph. She would supply the place of the child I have lost, and must for ever bewail. Let us still hope for you and for her. At the moment when Rudolph and Madame Georges approached the farm, Murphy and Marie also entered. The worthy gentleman let go the arm of Goualeuse, and said to Rudolph in a low voice, and with an air of some confusion, This girl has bewitched me. I really do not know which interests me most, she or Madame Georges. I was a brute, a beast. I knew, old Murphy, that you would do justice to my protégé said Rudolph, smiling and shaking hands with the squire. Madame Georges, leaning on Marie's arm, entered with her into a small room on the ground floor, where the Abbe Laporte was waiting. Murphy went away, to see all ready for their departure. Madame Georges, Marie, Rudolph, and the curé remained together. Plain but very comfortable, this small apartment was fitted up with green hangings, like the rest of the house, as had been exactly described to Goualeuse by Rudolph. A thick carpet covered the floor, a good fire burnt in the grate, and two large nosegays of daisies of all colours, placed in two crystal vases, shed their agreeable odour throughout the room. Through the windows, with their green blinds, which were half-opened, was to be seen the meadow, the little stream, and beyond it the bank, planted with chestnut-trees. The Abbe Laporte, who was seated near the fireplace, was upwards of eighty years of age had, ever since the last days of the Revolution, done duty in this small parish. Nothing can be imagined more venerable than his aged, withered, and somewhat melancholy countenance, shaded by long white locks, which fell on the collar of his black cassock, which was pierced in more places than one. The abbe liked better, as they said, to clothe one or two poor children in good warm broadcloth than faire de mouguet, that is, to wear his cassocks less than two or three years. The good abbe was so old, so very old, that his hands trembled continually, and when he occasionally lifted them up when speaking, it might have been supposed that he was giving a benediction. "'Monsieur l'abbé,' said Rudolph respectfully, "'Madame Georges has undertaken the guardianship of this young girl, for whom I also beg your kindness.' "'She is entitled to it, sir, like all who come to us.' "'The mercy of God is inexhaustible, my dear child, "'and he has evinced it in not abandoning you in most severe trials. "'I know all.' "'And he took the hand of Marie in his own withered and trembling palms. 
the generous man who has saved you has realised the words of holy writ the lord is near to all who call upon him he will fulfil the desire of those who fear him he will hear their cries and he will save them now deserve his bounty by your conduct and you will always find one ready to encourage and sustain you in the good path on which you have entered you will have in madame georges a constant example in me a careful adviser the lord will finish his work and i will pray to him for those who have had compassion on me and have led me to him father said la goualeuse throwing herself on her knees before the priest her emotion overcame her her sobs almost choked her madame georges rudolph and the abbe were all deeply affected rise my dear child said the cure you will soon deserve absolution from those serious faults of which you have been rather the victim than the criminal for in the words of the prophet the lord raises up all those who are ready to fall and elevates those who are oppressed murphy at this moment opened the door monsieur rudolph he said the horses are ready adieu father adieu madame georges i commend your child to your care our child i should say farewell marie i will soon come and see you again the venerable pastor leaning on the arms of madame georges and la goualeuse who supported his tottering steps left the room to see rudolph depart the last rays of the sun shed their light on this interesting yet sad group an old priest, the symbol of charity, pardon, and everlasting hope, a female overwhelmed by every grief that can distress a wife and mother, a young girl hardly out of her infancy, and but recently thrown into an abyss of vice through misery and the close contact with crime. Rudolph got into the carriage, Murphy took his place by his side, and the horses set off with speed. End of chapter 11